This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 23rd, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers. We're going to talk this week about a few things that have happened during the week in the area of taxes. We'll start out by looking at a case that looks at alimony issues, which you might think we don't deal with that anymore, but we still have all those alimony and those, let's say, divorce decrees that occurred before 2018. So we have those before 2019, actually, with TCJ. So we still need to understand what qualifies, and this is one of those cases where we're looking at whether a series of or a payments, series of payments made by a physician qualified as alimony paid to his former spouse. Second, we're going to take a look at the IRS announcing an option for employers to establish leave-based contribution programs to aid in relief for the Ukrainian war. This is something which the IRS has done previously. The whole concept here is first thing is why we need a special IRS announcement for this sort of program and what exactly are the conditions we have on this announcement. Finally, we're going to look at the IRS extending for what the agency now tells us is the last time the program that allows for remote signing of certain qualified plan documents. This was a program that was put in place initially as part of the COVID-19 relief programs. Now the IRS is saying, well, we think we're close to the point where we don't need this anymore. So we're going to we're going to extend it one more time because it was going to end at the end of June, but we don't plan to extend it beyond the end of this year. And we'll talk about another issue here is in addition to, well, the end of COVID issues in this area, we'll talk about the fact that the IRS had been discussing whether they wanted to make this program permanent, period. They didn't say anything in this case about doing anything in that area. Question is, have they decided now the answer is going to be no. Now, let's talk about the first case here. This is a case of Ibrahim versus Commissioner Tax Court Summary Opinion 2022-7. This one came down May the 16th of 2022. Now, if you may remember, when we talk about alimony, the issue is not whether the state you are in labels something as alimony. In fact, the state you are in may not label something at all as alimony. They might not have an alimony category at all to begin with. They may call it support, they may call various things, but the feds don't really care what they call it. The fact that your state calls something alimony doesn't mean it's going to be deductible to the payee and includable in income uh, by, or by deductible by the payor, I should say, and includable in income by the payee. But the flip side is too, just as well, the fact that something's not called alimony does not mean it won't be deductible by the payor and includable in income by the payee who receives it. And the four tests for alimony, which are under federal law, and this is from old section 71. And generally, the payment must be received by or on behalf of a spouse under a divorce or separation instrument. It also, the decree or separation instrument does not designate such a payment as a payment which is not includable in gross income and not allowable in, as a deduction in terms of support or alimony. The third category is it 
in the case of a legally separate individual legally separated from a spouse under degree of divorce or separate maintenance, they can't share the same household. And number four, there is no liability for the payor to continue to make payments following the death of the recipient. If all four of those conditions are met and you don't run afoul of a couple of rules that are meant to catch disguised child support where you tie the end of such a payment stream to the date that a dependent reaches a certain age, you know, certain other events that might suggest that this is really child support, and also some anti-front-end loading rules that deal with trying to get around, trying to use this as disguised, uh, basically, property settlement, it will count as alimony. Now, in this case, we're going to take a look at the case, and this was a case of the doctor. And in this case, the doctor, in this situation, right, they had a marriage, they had separated apart the marriage, we had this issue. Now, key issue was they, they finally got to an agreement. There were going to be a series of payments that eventually totaled $50,000, right? And these payments would be made in this way. Now, one key issue of this, though, is that it did say very clearly that they've entered into that agreement and neither party shall, right, receive maintenance from the other and, you know, and basically the judgment is not modifiable. So that was the nature of the statement. Now the question becomes, is this alimony? And the two key issues that the IRS disagreed with the doctor about, because the doctor is trying to claim his deduction here, is the first is, it was the claim that this said, neither spouse will owe maintenance does that mean effectively that this is a designation that the payment is not deductible and not includable? So therefore, failing under one of the exclusions, because remember, if it's designated as of that type, then, gang, you know, we, we don't need to worry about the rest of this. And then secondly, the question becomes in this case, is, is this something that, under, that would have been due, where payments would have been due had the recipient spouse died prior to the date the payments were due. Now, by this date, all payments had been made. So, obviously, all payments were made. The question, though, comes down to fundamentally not whether all were made, but if, let's say, that the spouse had died before the last payment was required, would the last payment have been required to be made? Now, the court looked at a couple of things. The first thing is the document itself really, you know, okay, it doesn't have explicit language saying that for tax purposes, this shall not be alimony. But the court notes that we don't necessarily need language to be that explicit, right? If it is clear, uh, basically, from the language of the agreement, Clear, explicit, and express direction in the divorce decree stating the payment is not to be treated as alimony or separate maintenance payment, then that's deemed to fulfill the second category. Now, as I said, that, that's a little different. If it's silent on the issue, then no, you, you've not covered this. It doesn't have to say it is alimony. But the question is, is it clear and explicit? 
In this case, the court said, Doctor, you and your wife signed an agreement that said neither party shall be liable for nor shall they pay separate maintenance to the other. Um, that's your agreement. And as far as we're concerned, that represents clear, explicit, and express direction that this should not be treated as alimony. Now, like I said, note the subtlety there. Had the agreement not had that clause, it would have had the same requirements for the payments, but it had not had a clause about finding there should be no explicit payment for maintenance. That would not have been the same thing. Now, the doctor tries to argue, well, yeah, but under state law, uh, you're not allowed to walk away if your spouse would be made destitute, doesn't have the means of support, etc. And therefore, it would make it into a required payment of separate maintenance under the applicable state law. But the court came back again and said, first thing is, this court never found that that condition exists. Secondly, the court said, your wife, you know, has had gainful employment as a nurse, continues to work that way, has done so and continues to do so now after these payments are done. It doesn't look like, you know, this was somebody that was going out on the street if these payments weren't made. And third, doctor, you agreed to a clause that said there is no such thing required. So saying, you know, you, you really can't come in here and try to argue against your own agreement by saying that this doesn't work. But then the court went on and said, well, you know, would these payments be required to be paid after the death of the recipient? The court notes that, hey, we've already covered the fact that these payments would not have, you know, basically don't qualify because we're told they're not separate maintenance payments. But so the court says, but let, let's take a look at this second issue anyway. Now, this second issue is one that becomes a problem quite often because just like this agreement, the agreements are quiet. You know, they, they don't tell us what's going to happen. You know, instead of saying, since this is obviously a key thing, instead of saying, hey, look, there's no liability for the payor to pay this after the date of death of the payee, regardless of the fact there are still scheduled payments remaining to be made. They don't say that. But what, therefore, the tax court has to do in that case is go back and see how state law would interpret this. So we have to go back, looking at state law, trying to find precedent to see how would the state that has jurisdiction, like I'm here in Arizona, how would the state of Arizona deal with this? If the state of Arizona was presented with this agreement and, you know, the doctor's wife or former wife died before the day of the final payment, would the state here, if this was in Arizona, have required the payment to be made? Now, the doctor said he went back to his theory that, well, you know, maintenance was required here because his ex-spouse would not be able to maintain, you know, basically she, she couldn't really support herself in a reasonable way unless she had some sort of additional funds. But the court here said, no, said we don't have any finding that that's the case by the court reminding him. We have an explicit agreement, which the judge apparently, and I think this would be important, the judge in the in the divorce case, didn't object to that, said it wasn't. 
you, you would assume that if you tried to say it wasn't maintenance when legally it was absolutely required maintenance be paid in this divorce, that the judge wouldn't have signed it. Court said, no, we, we don't see there's anywhere near adequate evidence that there would be no requirement to pay after the death of your spouse had she died before payments began. Therefore, sorry, doctor, this is going to be considered to be not deductible alimony and tough luck. You know, just, you know, don't, don't worry about it. It's just not deductible. Next up, let's talk about notice 202228. This was issued here on May the 20th. And this deals with employer leave-based donation programs for relief related to the Russian incursion into Ukraine. Now let's talk about the general rule for employer leave-based programs where they would allow an employee to send the funds. So, you know, let's say you get paid $20 an hour, you have you know, 10 hours of overtime, you would say, I'm going to donate 10 hours of my overtime at $20 an hour to this charity. Therefore, $200 would go to the charity. Under normal tax rules, the problem is that you're essentially receiving income and trying to assign it to a charity. So they're not going to let you bypass it directly. Rather, what's going to be deemed to have happened was the employer will be deemed to have paid the employee salary equal to that $200. That $200 in salary will be subject to payroll taxes. So the employer will get stuck with FICA, Medicare, FUTA, state unemployment, other such things on those funds. And the employee will obviously get stuck with withholding for FICA and Medicare on those wages, as well as having to pick that up on their income tax return, and this $200 would be subject to withholding. Now, the employer would get a $200 deduction for wage payments. Okay, fine. But the employee would then have made a $200 charitable contribution. Now, especially because we're no longer in 2021, if that employee doesn't itemize, that $200 is not going to be deductible. You know, so if they don't have enough to clear the standard deduction, we're not going to get it. But even if they do, yeah, you might say it offsets, except we all know there are triggers based on AGI. There are percentage of AGI rules for various things. So there'll probably be a slight disadvantage there for income taxes, even if they offset. But secondly that none of that's going to help us on the payroll taxes, either on the employer or the employee side. So for that reason, generally employers are not going to offer this leave-based donation program because for practical purposes, yeah, it's just going to cause issues and conceivably could cause problems for the entire leave-based program. So rather, in terms of, well, if they could take cash at any point and cash in the amount, is that really closer to a deferred comp style arrangement and not when it's going to qualify 409 cap A if they actually can take funds out? We end a whole mess. We don't want to get there. However, going back to the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks and relief there, the IRS has on various occasions, as I said, for 9-11 uh, and in the cases of certain 
natural disasters, hurricanes, it's done quite often. Uh, also, with regard to COVID-19, we had programs for it. They put together these programs from time to time to allow employees to make donations to employer leave programs, or in the case of COVID, donate their leave to a pool that other employees who came down with COVID could use leave time from if they were out of time. And those programs have been done. But as I noted, since the general rule is that this would be taxable to the employee who you know, basically who had the leave time coming and now converts it into this other function and assigns it out to a charity or another employee, you need the IRS to say, no, we're going to grant temporary relief from that, which the agency has done. And for a certain time period, you'll be able to do this. Now, in this case, the rules for the program are that this will need to be aid that is directed related to relief for refugees and other items for the that have arisen due to the Russian incursion into Ukraine. Secondly, the other catch is it also has to be the amount of leave has to be assigned over donation paid by January 1st of 2023. If a program meets the criteria, it's for the right things. And if it's within the right time frames, then you're able to treat this as not income to the employee. And flip side of that, no payroll taxes due by the employer side. And the employer will still get the deduction for having sent the funds on to the aid agency to take care of the issue. So again, if your clients are interested in such a program, the business you're with is interested in such a program, uh, it is available. I suggest you read the notice. The notice will send you back to prior notices that created earlier versions of this, especially the initial one that created the program at the 2001 9-11 terrorist attacks. You'll, you'll find some guidance there as to how these programs would run. Finally, we have notice 2022-27. This one was issued on May the 13th. If you remember back in 2020, we had some special relief issued uh, related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Certain things, certain documents related to retirement plans, especially documents signed by a spouse who is who is saying, yep, I, I agree, we're not going to take like a joint survivor annuity out of the program. I'm going to give up my rights, etc., and allow the money to go here or not be designated as a beneficiary. Those sorts of documents, traditionally under the regulations, under 401, have to be signed by the spouse, either in the personal, with a notary, who sees the person in person so they can personally verify that person. Because the concern here is that a spouse who is wanting to rob the funds from the other spouse would, you know, try to forge a signature or have somebody else stand in, put a, you know, a non per, you know, put somebody other than their spouse in to sign the documents. So we want to have that person come in, be able to be questioned and show ID and information in front of either a notary public or in front of a representative of the plan. 
Well, as you may remember, there's this thing about COVID that, especially back in 2020, before we had many treatments and, you know, there was no vaccine issues. There was, you know, pretty much, and we didn't know, but numbers were getting bad. So people were not thrilled of coming in and seeing, and especially older people, because we're all pretty much aware that the, you know, the problem here becomes the older one is, the more likely the outcome of COVID will be bad. So these people don't want to really come in and sign these documents in front of a person. So the IRS said, okay, due to COVID, we're going to grant temporary relief. So we would allow fully remote notarization under the rules a state provides. Now, if the state allows for remote notarization, you know, online, not in person, notarization where the other party signing is not in the same place as a notary. If you meet all of those rules, which in theory are supposed to serve to protect the parties to assure that really is the other person and whatever the state requires for that, if you meet those requirements, we'll accept that, even though our regulations say, sorry, you can do everything else you want to using that remote notarization law, but there has to be an in-person meeting between the notary and the this person who is signing, normally the spouse, that's signing this document. We'll waive that as long as you meet the state requirements temporarily. And for as far as a planned representative signature, we're going to allow you to do things like Zoom calls, FaceTime, things like that using specific procedures. Those procedures generally required you to have the person there live on camera you know, they, they, they couldn't just, the, the spouse couldn't just tape their responses and have that, you know, have that replayed. They had to be able to interact directly using a program like Zoom, FaceTime, uh, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, you know, one of those sorts of things. They had to be able to interact directly with the other party. And they had to see an ID that they would hold up to the camera so they could see the ID. And they had to actually sign the document in question on front of the camera so we could see the signature being applied, fax that back to the uh, participant while the call was applied back, I say, to the plan representative while the call was going on. The plan representative would then signify his receipt of it, sign it on that, and then fax or scan and send back a copy to the spouse that was signing. Those were the requirements. Now, initially, they were only good through the end of 2020. They've been extended a couple of times and now is set to expire on June 30 of this year. So it would expire the end of next month. Now, what's going to happen here is the IRS has now agreed that they will extend this program until December 31st, 2022. So, you'll be able to continue on July 1st. You can still do these remote signatures and that will be allowed all the way through the end of this year. However, the IRS did do one other thing here. They indicated that most likely this will be the last extension. That is, they will not extend the time to, you know, the time period where we don't have to see the person beyond the end of this year. Now that's kind of interesting because the 
notice that extended it through June 30 of this year, actually said the IRS was considering just making guidance like this permanent and eliminating the physical presence requirement. I had have been noticing in tax notes a number of different comments were sent in by various parties, most of which appeared to have complained that allowing that to happen would allow an abusive spouse to be able to get these signatures done without the real, you know, informed consent of the other spouse who'd be forced to do it that having to bring that spouse in in person and interact with this third party, you know, away from the potentially controlling spouse is important in those cases. While the IRS didn't say they're no longer considering issuing regs of that sort, they also didn't say, oh yes, by the way, which is what you'd usually expect in something like this, they're going to move forward. Oh yes, but by the way, we, we also want to announce we have now received and are considering the comments received on this issue, you know, and, and we plan to issue modifications to this program uh, that will become effective when this, you know, latest relief ends. We, we would expect them to be affected by then. No, nope, they, they just haven't said a word about it. I think there's a more than reasonable chance that in fact what the IRS has decided is that we're just not going to do that. We're going to go ahead and accept the theory that, you know, it's not a good idea. That while we have a COVID problem, it's okay for this, but there is too much of a chance. And in essence, they, they, they see the risk of, let's say, an abusive or controlling spouse being able to browbeat someone into accepting and signing off is higher and I guess the argument the people make who don't want this change is it's too much higher if you don't require the physical presence in front of the plan representative where the person can directly look at them, check them, you know, see what's going on. So if you are liking this new system and you want to be able to keep using it, maybe your employees liked it. Of course, you had a controlling spouse employee. They would like it, I suppose, but for a different reason than others might like it. Let, let's assume that, that you don't have such an employee and that the spouse of the employee actually prefers that because otherwise he or she has to figure out how to get down and meet with somebody to get things signed, which is a bit of a pain as always, but you know, doesn't matter. Apparently we're going back. So if they want to get something signed and do it under the fully remote system, it appears the clock is now running. The end of December will be it. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of March the, not March, May the 23rd. You know, let's not go back in time here. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. Uh, I want to suggest that you, that I do uh, follow along and, uh, you know, keep an eye on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Washington, uh, Minnesota, and also look at what's posted on Idaho's site. So if you have any issues, you can go ahead and uh, post a message in one of those. And if I see it uh, and think I might be able to help, I, I'll see about responding. Uh, we'll take care of it from there. Uh, also want to say, go ahead and watch out. We are going to be out doing some continuing education programs again. Uh, we'll actually be doing a few in person. So we'll have that going on. So look forward to doing some of that this year. But otherwise, uh, hopefully you're having a good week. Hopefully time's going well for you. We're outside of the original due dates now for calendar year for, for 
pretty much everything except qualified retirement plans. So we're on extended due dates for most things. So hopefully you're working your way through that uh, pack for the people who actually get stuff in after the original due date. Uh, you know, rather than those who said, oh, we're on extension, I'll probably get something in here October 3rd. Yeah, that, that's a less fun group. But otherwise, we'll look, come back here next week and see you here on current federal tax developments.